Good morning. Welcome to episode two of View from the Hilltop. My name is Justin Goss. I am the editor-in-chief at Georgetown Public Policy Review. I am joined by two of our editors, Delaney Luna, Luna, senior online editor, and Shane McCarthy, also senior online editor. And we have the pleasure of being joined by a real live journalist. Do you want to introduce yourself? I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I'm alive. Hi, I'm Rebecca Sinderbrand. I am the deputy national political editor for the Washington Post and managing editor of The Fix, which is our political analysis around here. Yeah, so as you can tell, we are actually not on the hilltop, ironically. We are coming to you from Washington Post headquarters. Thank you for the invitation. Today, we're going to be talking about the official endorsement of Hillary Clinton from Washington Post and why so many publications have chosen to sit this race out in terms of endorsements. We're going to be talking about is this campaign really a game changer or are all campaigns a little bit weird or is this campaign especially weird? Uh, we're going to be talking about the demographics of the campaign because we love data here at GPPR. We're going to be talking about the use of polling in this campaign and voters' relationship to the media in this campaign. And then we're also going to be talking about things like DC statehood um, and what happens after the election. And of course, we will close with our segment, So That Happened, where we share our favorite stories from the, from the last week or so uh, that we haven't been able to get out of our heads. So the Washington Post just endorsed Hillary Clinton. Was that a tough decision in this election? Uh, I have to say, of course, the, the traditional caveat here that the editorial department and the uh, and the actual newsroom could not be more separate. It is a complete wall. So we don't really know what they're doing. They don't know what we're doing. So um, people ask us to answer for them all the time. And Got we're it. just kind of put in their direction. I will say, you know, we talk about the newspaper endorsements this year. It's, of course, worth noting, and as you're probably aware, Donald Trump has yet to get a daily newspaper endorsement um, from any editorial board or any newspaper. Um, several Republican newspapers that have endorsed Republicans going back to the 19th century um, have had some tough calls this year, and some of them have gone with Gary Johnson, some of them have decided not to endorse at all, and some of them have gone with Hillary Clinton for the first time um, endorsing a Democrat in 80 years, in one case more than 120 years. So um, a lot of really tough decisions for a lot of editorial boards writing really long explanations to their <laughs> readers about how they arrived at this moment. Um, in a lot of sense, you know, some of these are very clear that they're making anti-endorsements as well. I know the Atlantic especially, you know, they were pretty clear about, we don't usually do this, but we feel so sort of repulsed by one side of the spectrum that we decided we needed to take this plunge. Um, in a lot of these cases, you know, do you find that it's the case that there is actual enthusiasm among the, the papers, especially maybe even the Republican-leaning ones traditionally, versus just sort of a blanket rejection of Donald Trump? Well, it's interesting. Because uh, Donald Trump is such a, a you know polarizing figure, you actually have had, from a number of newspaper boards, including, I, I believe, ours as well, um, split editorials in which they, number one, endorse Hillary Clinton, and then have a separate anti-endorsement editorial in which they lay out the reasons why they are you know think Donald Trump is the worst candidate ever, or just a candidate they can't possibly support. Hmm. Um, and because they, they're very conscious of that, that the idea that um, they don't want people to be thinking they're making an endorsement 
of Hillary Clinton just because they don't like Donald Trump. Sure. Other newspapers, they do say that. They say, look, Hillary Clinton's not our favorite candidate. Um, in a regular year um, against a typical Republican opponent, we probably wouldn't endorse her, but this year we think the choice is clear. So um, you have this kind of division, and, and this is one of the first years that I can ever remember um, this many papers doing anti-endorsement uh, editorials. So. Has something like that ever happened before? To this extent, no. I mean, a lot of what we're seeing this year is, you know, as people have noted, uh, unprecedented. That word gets tossed around a lot, but, you know, this is my fifth presidential campaign, and I can say, at least from my perspective, a lot of what we're seeing this year is things that we've never quite seen before on a lot of fronts, you know, um, on endorsements in the month of October from a member of the candidate's own party. Um, I mean, just you go down the list. Um, and so we're kind of in uncharted waters a bit here covering this campaign. Is there, not to disparage this, but has there uh, any evidence that um, newspaper endorsements have a substantial impact on, on voter uh, trends or anything So that's, like that? that's the big question. So, you know, newspapers would like to, it's not necessarily the idea that they're going to swing lots of voters. Sure. Um, I think that, especially these days, um, there's not necessarily a ton of sway. What it does do is it gives a sense of, um, uh, if you're trying to come up with where the conventional wisdom is, where the establishment is, if you're the kind of voter who um, you're looking to see what people, um, most people, a majority of people are thinking, and you're looking to your newspaper to say to see what other people are thinking, and you see this overwhelming tide of all of the newspapers coming down on one side, well, the news media is in hell and terribly high regard by lots of people, so that may not affect you. But it might, and you know, there's there's a lot of discussion around that. There's a lot of discussion about whether newspapers should be in the editorial and uh, uh, endorsement business at all, um, even with that wall, hmm. just because it gives people the impression that newspapers are taking one side or another, even though none of these reporters who are on an editorial board, as great as they are, have anything to do with our campaign coverage. So hmm. it's, it's a little confusing distinction for some people to make, I think. Do you know, is there any polling data that bears out the idea that newspaper endorsements have an effect on campaigns? I mean, it's one of those things that's very, very tough to, to measure, to be perfectly honest with you. And the fact is that people's votes, there are a lot of factors that go into it, some of which they're conscious of, some of which they're not conscious of. Very rarely, very rarely, although again, this year may be an exception, can you point to one single factor that is the decisive factor? Of course, this year we are seeing one or two moments that you can point to as, yeah, this is a pretty decisive moment. This is a moment that's shifting a lot of people's votes where they, like, where they might otherwise have fallen. Um, but in general, it's, it's kind of more of an organic process than a straight, I'm making this calculation based on one or two factors. Um, and sometimes people don't make a decision until election day. That Good. Oh, I was just going to say also the way people consume media, mm -hmm. um, the people that Washington Post is speaking to are probably already supporting Hillary Clinton oh, anyway. Probably. So it's just like, well, it probably doesn't you make know, that much of a difference. You could, yeah, you could, yeah, you can look at the demographics. Like if we're looking at the demographics this year, um, based on our readership, we, we have a, we'd like to think a fairly diverse readership, but the fact of the matter is if you are reading a daily newspaper, you're someone who's probably likely to be older, perhaps more educated, perhaps. I mean, you know, it's it's all of these different categories, and you look at the way those categories are splitting. This year, you know, if you drew a Venn diagram of a Washington Post reader, it's likely that more likely than not that they would be a Hillary Clinton supporter. But that's not to say that's a conscious 
effort on our part. It's just kind of the way the chips fall, and it's not much one can one can do about it. Except, you know, try to make sure that we get as many voices in our pages as possible. I mean, we made. I can't even tell you how much we've spent this year, but it's been a great investment um, to send people out to, to speak to Trump voters and try to find out exactly what it is they're thinking, exactly what they think is driving them, um, whether they're conscious of it, whether they're not conscious of it. Um, and so a lot of effort and a lot of ink has been spilled and a lot of money spent to try to make sure that their voice is represented in our pages. So. Great segue. Speaking of demographics, yes. so you are also a geopolitics fellow this semester, I am. and it's my understanding that you were planning on talking about demographics of the campaign yes. in one of your discussion sections, that was but <laughs> that got overwhelmed uh, by the uh, recent events. Recent events. Recent, <laughs> recent events that have dominated the news cycle for the last yeah. ten days or so. Yeah. We do want to talk about demographics though. Um, because mo mo most most folks Fabulous. listening to this have probably already heard about uh, those events in the news cycle. Um, so, who? So e even a even after these uh, repeated scandals of Donald Trump um, claiming that that he or bragging about sexually assaulting women, and now women coming forward and actually saying these are not just words; these are actions. Uh, Polls reflect that there's still some 39%, some 40% mm -hmm. of the electorate mm -hmm. that still supports Donald Trump, all of this news notwithstanding. Yeah. So do we have any sense of, so who are these voters? What what sure. demo, what demographics in, uh, comprise that 40% mm -hmm. that still support Donald Trump? Sure, and, and what this is basically doing, what the events of the past week in particular have done, but we've seen this over the course of the entire cycle, has been a gradual winnowing um, of Donald Trump's support down to the to the core. Hmm. Um, that's what you're seeing at the rallies now. The rallies have gotten more intense. Our reporters are, are noting the, the rallies are, are far more intense lately, the reactions they're getting, because you really have the, the, the base of the base right now. Um, how, sorry, how do you mean intense? Uh, you know, the reaction that reporters get when they're there, um, you know, we've, this is something that has been out there a little bit. Reporters don't like to make themselves a focus of the story, of course, but reporters who go to these rallies tend to get a lot of abuse, um, verbal abuse. They had to have uh, escorts to the bathroom at the last rally, a swastika was left on, a, on the media table. So there's a lot of um, uh, things that are a little bit different, and people are feeling really intense emotions right now, and those emotions are manifesting themselves in very intense ways. Um, Right now, um, Donald Trump's support, particularly in the wake of the video, has dropped among women. Um, it's dropped particularly among educated, among college-educated white women. Mm -hmm. um, oddly enough, the intensity of support among um, working-class white men has increased slightly. And it's perhaps because they feel, you know, he's being in battle, he's being attacked unfairly. That's a feeling a lot of them do have, and so they're identifying with that. Um, his supporters tend to be um, whiter than uh, average, uh, even whiter than the typical um, Republican candidate. Republican campaigns tend to depend hmm. heavily on the white vote. And of course, we've had endless discussions about the fact that Mitt Romney won a greater percentage of the white vote than Ronald Reagan did. But because right. of the changing demographics of the country, that wasn't nearly enough. Um, and this year, it certainly won't be nearly enough. And so we're seeing that now, looking at the map, um, We've always said, you know, Donald Trump said he would change the electoral map, and he certainly has. Um, Arizona, Georgia, Utah, 
all in play. Um, and so, you know, those are, those are areas that are actual battlegrounds right now. Um, and so, you know, which is not to say that, you know, there wasn't the possibility or the potential for Donald Trump to have expanded beyond that base. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a floor right now um, for both parties, right. below, with, below which it's almost impossible for a major party candidate to fall just because of the intensity of the partisan divide. This is, you know, this is not news to you guys. Right. Do we have a sense of what his floor is? Um, is it, is well, it this 39%? You know, that's, that's the big that's the big debate. You know, like you can look at history and I mean sure. the historical how few votes, what what's been the, the, the record setting low number, and you have people making pools. Uh, I've seen pundits kind of say, Oh, well, I'm guessing he's gonna get this number, he's gonna he's gonna get Alf Landon numbers, he's gonna get, you know, making all this speculation. We don't know. We I mean, you know, anyone who tells you they know for sure is lying to you. But hmm. Um, we can say based on the on the trends, um, the trends we're seeing point to um, point to a not particularly great showing for Donald Trump. But you know, hmm. it, I, I always put an asterisk on everything. You never, I mean, the the one thing I learned very early in my career is you never make predictions. So. I think what's you know particularly fascinating and particularly uh, scary to me is that you know we have now what 27 days until the election. We have oh, less than that. Less than less that. Than, 26 than, and a half, whatever we're, we're that count, is. We're counting. Counting the hours. We have, I guess, 99 and a half days left of the Obama administration. Eventually, we will move on from this. We will get past this. But now everything's out in the open. You know, it used to be all subtle intonations and dog whistles mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of playing to people's you know, inclinations. And now that's not the case anymore. Um, people are much more upfront. You know, we've seen family members not talking to each other anymore, you know, after this election. And I'm just, you know, really interested and really worried about what happens now. We're going to be left with this 39, this 40 percent of people who voted for Donald Trump who are unapologetic about it. And, you know, regardless of what Trump does after the election, uh, they're going to still be around. They're going to have a, an impact and they're still going to be trying to, you know, make their voices heard on the political and the cultural conversations within the United States. Uh, so I don't I think that's just interesting to think about. I don't have you know, an inclination of what that's going to look like, but. I think it's important to recognize that this will have a, a legacy beyond November 8th or November 28th or whatever the date is, you know, that the, that they've decided upon. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to sort of open that up and get thoughts on that as well. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, the 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 big question right now it's kind of a twofold question. The first is um, Donald Trump himself. What happens to him after November 8th? Um, you know, he has. He's a singular figure. In many ways, there are very few people, perhaps no one, who could have coalesced this, this particular kind of support mm -hmm. um, in this particular way, um, just based on no one else has 30 years of, you know, penetrating the American consciousness with a certain image. And you know, I mean, it's 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 a unique circumstance, a unique figure. He is facing legal issues, very real legal issues, um, not just you know the kind of the what we've seen over the past week, but actual lawsuits, things that could result in, you know, criminal charges, IRS investigation, all kinds of things swirling around, we don't know where that lands and how much that affects him and how much that occupies his time. And certainly um, his brand has suffered over the course of this campaign. A lot of his attention as a businessman is going to have to be focused on kind of resurrecting that. So, hmm. you know, the, in terms of him as a, as a political figure, it's impossible to say at this point precisely where he goes from here. He's, you know, closed off a lot of doors that he used to have in his old life. 
Absolutely. He may not want to walk through the doors that he has created in, in his new life. We just don't know quite yet um, what's next for him. Um, and is there any other figure that can capture the imagination of his supporters in quite the same way? That is a big question. Um, it's, you know, if anything, he has shown that there are certain um, mores, certain um, standards of political life that technically, if you find the right formula, if you find the right personality, all bets are off and you don't have to embrace those anymore, or at least, you know, we'd like you to embrace them, but you, you, we, can, we can't force you to. Um, uh, is there someone else who could come along and, and take that up? And that's, that's the big question. I mean, you know, it's worth noting that during the primary season, he endorsed some candidates and they did not do spectacularly well, hmm. um, which, you know, he, if anyone's going to have coattails, you would assume it would generate, it would at, at the very least show up um, when you're talking about Republicans. Sure. Um, and the fact that it's not even showing up there makes people wonder about the, the crossover potential. The Trump How much, land is yeah, not the general election. Yeah. To to your point of his base though, the 39% or so, the demo, the demographics. There there's there's a few things that I understand where it tends to be. Um, non-college educated white men because you're, you're talking about um utah being a battleground state and utah as i understand it i've never been to utah but does have a significant a large part, portion of the electorate is made up of white men within utah um that part part of that is the mormon factor within uh, pulling from mcmullen but some of that has to do with education levels as well um same same thing in michigan which also has a white electorate but better educated overall um so it's so two, two things to that point. One is that education is something that we can start to fix, and we are actually seeing higher rates of post-secondary educational attainment um, over time, not necessarily in the uh, traditional four-year college space, but in terms of like associate's degrees and career technical education. I would, ar I would argue that everything helps. Um, and the, the other thing is that the population of the US will continue to expand in the meantime, and we, are seeing greater levels of uh, demographics that we currently refer to as minorities. Um, but what what's the estimate? By 2050, I want to say. I think sooner than sooner than that. Sooner than that. Um, uh, white white folks in the U.S. will no longer have a majority, and no no uh, demographic no racial demographic group will have a majority. There will be uh, very there will be a plurality of sorts. Um, in the meantime, though. I, that, so that's that's not going to happen overnight. In the meantime, I agree it's going to be an awkward Thanksgiving for certain families. Um, but I would say that the 39% is maybe uh, not as constant a force as some might like to think. Well, and I, I would say I would agree with what you said broadly. I would just put a couple of quick asterisks or additions to that. Um, the first is uh, the definition of, of whiteness. Um, it, what you find is that over time. Um, many people who've been in the United States, immigrants for several generations, who were not considered white, um, it, all of a sudden it, it evolved and they begin to consider themselves white Americans. Sure. You, you saw that you know, with Italian immigrants and Irish immigrants and, and others. And so um, there is some sign that that process is happening with at least some immigrants, particularly Hispanic immigrants, some Asian immigrants as well. Um, so it's not a static definition. The other question is, of course, the question of white identity politics, which is something that we're seeing come to the fore with this election, the idea that as um, white Americans begin to think of themselves as perhaps becoming a minority, whether 
that begins to be a more conscious driver of their vote, and that could shift things as well. You know, part of um, what we've seen is, you know, the, the white vote is by no means a monolith. Sure, you know, they've got a majority for Republican candidates, but not an overwhelming majority. You're not seeing 80% or 90%. You know, you don't see the sort of splits that you would see perhaps in the African American community or. Jewish Americans are so on. You don't, you don't see that kind of stark split. Whether that changes as well. So mm-hmm. like, there's all of these questions kind of swirling around that we don't know. We can take what we know about the demographics right now and try to project that into the future, but half a century is a long time, and it's hard to say exactly what things will look like then. The other kind of interesting thing I would note, and this is a very minor note, but it's worth noting, is uh, about Utah. Utah is, of course, beyond being more college-educated than typical state, it's also home to many Mormons. Yes. And Mormons do not like Donald Trump. Right. And that has had implications for him, not just in Utah, where the political establishment has overwhelmingly rejected him at this point. You know, the governor of the state, Senator Mike Lee, very dramatically calling for him to exit, Jason Chavis, other, others as well. Before this mass exodus, even, in some, yeah, with it, some of those political Yeah, but figures. more dramatically now as yes. well. Much more dramatically. Um, so I Desiree Clinton running Lewis, op-eds and papers over there. Yeah, does yeah. Oh, she's she's making a special pitch. You know, she exactly. launched it. And she's launched videos and special outreach to, to Mormon voters. Um, Mormon voters are also forces in Arizona and Utah and Colorado and other states that surround it. By no means decisive, but they made up a reliable part of the Republican base. And if they're not jazzed about a candidate, enthused about a candidate, that could have a difference as well. And that's part of the reason that we could say, at least a small part of the reason. Arizona's in play. Of course, Hispanic voters being especially motivated this year is another yes. part of that. Um, so th- there's all kinds of things. But it, it, the fact that Donald Trump has been able to really retain a lot of support from evangelical voters, but not Mormon voters, has been one of the very interesting developments of 2016. Do those two demographics tend to swing together? If you're talking about social conservatives, yes. So social conservatives, religious conservatives, um, you know, Mitt Romney, there was that whole kind of back and forth about whether evangelical voters would embrace Mitt Romney. Um, and when push came to shove, the fact that you know Mormons are seen as having these solid uh, religious social conservative values, that was something that evangelical voters could embrace. Sure. Um, Why do you think we've seen this difference between Mormons sort of sticking to that principle versus evangelical voters who we've seen sort of bucking the trend and going more toward Trump? And, and this is another thing, you know, it's... The, the, the vote with religious conservatives, I think, is a lot more complicated than a lot of people have given it credit for for a long time. There are, are cultural uh, elements to the vote um, that people may think it has to do with religion and, and religious beliefs, but it doesn't necessarily. Um, perception of outsiderness. Perception of outsiderness. Um, it, also, geographic location mm-hmm. where evangelicals tend more evangelicals tend to live and, and the way that those areas tend to vote. Um, and Mormons just culturally have a different, they, they don't like um, or have not liked coarse, kind of like more brazen, outspoken candidates. It's just not their style. Um, has it isn't the style of most of their leading politicians. Certainly Mitt Romney would be a very dramatic example of that. Yes. If we're thinking of the anti-Donald Trump, that would be that would be him. So um, so yeah, so there, there's elements of culture in there too. And, and re- the religious vote is much more complicated than a lot of people um, have assumed. Absolutely. To that point, so earlier in the discussion, and we've been, we've been talking around it this entire time, but you used the word unprecedented specifically. Yes. So there is a lot of debate about this, or maybe, maybe not a lot of debate. There's a lot of discussion about this, where to what degree have we never seen an election like this? Mm-hmm. And 
So I want to, I threw this topic in here because I, I wonder to what extent do we suffer from recency bias? Because I, I agree sure. looking at any quote unquote modern election or presidential race, I don't think we've ever seen anything quite like this with party defections mm -hmm. and the winnowing of the base like we've seen. Um, these battleground states are definitely in play for the first time in modern electoral history. But American politics has been going on for a long time. And there's been some really weird stuff that's happened through throughout the legacy of the presiden presidential races. So do you have any sense, do we all have any sense of to what extent this is brand new or unprecedented? Well, you know, to some extent, you, you, when you hear discussion of this sort of thing, you hear people say, talking about the modern era a lot. Right. And that's because the modern era, which is broadly defined as, you know, since uh, primary voting has been dominant, and that's been the way that the parties choose their candidates, it's a very, very, very different beast than what came before it. So it's, it's very difficult. If you're talking about the tone of the campaign, Sure, there's plenty that we could compare it to. There's been there's been some weird stuff. Um, we had a civil war. We had a civil war. Yeah, um, you know, at, you've had accusations of illegitimate children and all sorts of things. Um, that said, um, one of the things you look at is how much a campaign, how much a moment breaks from what was immediately prior to it. Um, that gives you a sense, you know, generally there are these dramatic breaks in precedent. If you have a change, it's a slow evolution over time. Things slowly change, you know, that that actually is the way the press got access to presidential candidates in the first place. You know, first they had this much access and then this, and then they were on the plane and, the, you know, it, it, it was a slow kind of um, move forward. We've had a complete reversal in the case of Donald Trump, the first presidential candidate of the modern era, not to have a protective press pool traveling with him at all times. Now this is not a precedent that the media is particularly comfortable with, or the media speaking broadly of reporters who cover the campaigns full time um, for a lot of reasons. Um, and that is a dramatic break. That is unprecedented in terms of since candidates have been traveling with these pools, this is a dramatic break with that. Hmm. Um, so that is what we, we count as unprecedented, but also no, we haven't seen, we really haven't seen, at least in my memory and from my knowledge of US political history, a, a party so dramatically, uh, such a huge chunk of the party so dramatically rejecting a candidate, particularly at this point in the campaign. You know, they, they did the, the USA Today did an analysis and one quarter of Republican elected officials, I believe they found, either hadn't endorsed Donald Trump or had unendorsed him. Right. That's a that's a strikingly high figure for your, not just your base, but your your people whose livelihoods may depend on your success. Sure. Um, so that's a that's a pretty big. But shift. so I would I would bring up and this is not in the mo in the modern era, but not not so far gone, I guess, uh, would be uh, the Taft Teddy Roosevelt race where I've heard I have heard statistical comparisons mm -hmm. to that election where that was the last time we had four candidates get more than 1% of the popular vote. Um, because you had the Bull Moose Party uh, led by Teddy Roosevelt split off from the Republican Party um, and run against Taft, and then Woodrow Wilson slipped through the cracks. And I believe it was Eugene Debs, who was in jail at the time, picked up something like 7% of the vote for the American Socialist Party. Shout out to Eugene Debs. He doesn't get enough That's true. talk on our podcast. He was presidential candidate at like, something like three or four elections. Yeah, yeah. Um, and William Jennings Bryan is the one that we remember That's from, right. from that yeah. era. Because I guess he was a little bit louder. 
Um, which candidate was it where there were accusations flying around of illegitimate children? Uh, Harding. There have been several. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, several. there's been a couple. Yeah. <laughs> I, would uh, put, I would put my money on Jackson. Harding, really? That's right. Yeah, no, huh. Harding for sure, yeah. I think, like, someone came forward really recently claiming they were his illegitimate granddaughter. Oh, wow. Yeah. It is, it, it, um, sorry, I was also yeah. thinking about Harding and Coolidge, though, just because in terms of the electorate being so willing to overlook certain types of scandals, and granted, that was for a sitting president, Harding got embroiled in a number of scandals, Teapot Dome and um, the uh, Comstock Load scandals. Um, and he died in office, and then Coolidge, his vice president, succeeded him, and the electorate kind of just forgot about it. And then Coolidge ended up winning, winning his next race, and people were kind of like, well, you know, it's disrespectful to the memory of our deceased president, and, you know, Honestly, you know, they were smart enough to get away with these these uh, financial scandals. Maybe, you know, maybe they deserve deserve that money. Um, I mean, but you know, of course, you had no admission of wrong, public admission of wrongdoing by the person who's running for. You know, we've we've had um, right now when we're talking about, and again, not to say that this is wrongdoing, but you just say, for instance, in the in the issue of Donald Trump's tax returns and what may or may not be in those tax returns. Um, he has certainly not denied the reporting that's been out there. You know, one of the kind of distinguishing features of Trump campaign denials, and we're, uh, as we speak, we're um, expecting to get uh, some sort of statement, or that we've been told we'll have some sort of statement about the most recent charges about um, uh, sexual harassment, um, and there, there will be some sort of pushback on that. But one of the more dramatic things we've seen is when there are these denials, they don't actually list any details that are inaccurate. So we'll broadly call an article inaccurate or wrong. Fabricated. Or fabricated. Um, Global conspiracy. But not actually point one. to any part of the story that is wrong. Um, and so, you know, there's no denial. Essentially, there's no denial of the allegations of wrongdoing. That is unique. Which is unique. And so, you know, you have a, a, a large group of people for whom Donald Trump is such a symbol that that doesn't matter. And also the fact that we've had a number of instances where um, his uh, proposals, um, his campaign has said they're more metaphorical or people connected to his campaign have said they're not real proposals, he's just kind of making it. And you ask his base, many of whom react very strongly if you're talking about the wall, if you're talking about arresting and prosecuting Hillary Clinton, they don't see those as metaphors. Um, but if you tell them, well, what if he doesn't do that? They're like, well, you know, the fact that he's saying it is enough for us. Hmm. It's, it's very much the, about the symbolism and the, him as a figurehead for this group of people who feel disenfranchised because they, you know, they've been dreaming of someone who would get on a debate stage and, you know, tell it how it is. And tell it how it is. And that, that's what they've been dreaming of, and they're getting their dream right now. So. Well. This is the dream. They're living yeah. the dream. So, someone's happy. Yeah. So, yeah. Kind of dream. Uh, some kind of dream. <laughs> this is a nightmare. Um, Back to the idea of polling quickly. Sure. What uh, Trump has a unique relationship with polling in this election. He does. Where, <laughs> where he definitely he won all the polls. Exactly. <laughs> right. And so, so sometimes he loves polling from polls. Other times, not him directly, but his yes. uh, surrogates. There's the there's the uh, Brianna Keeler CNN interview yes. that got talked that got passed around quite a bit with the uh, you're you're down in the polls and then she was asked which ones uh, and she said all of them uh, and then they just kind of moved on from that segment. <laughs> um, 
And so sometimes Trump tells his supporters that the polls are, they're lying or that the media is spinning it in such a way. It seems like this election has more so than others brought out a real distrust of polling and the media. Well, I would say, well, on on the polling front, I mean, you got to remember 2012, that was the year of skewed polls. People were convinced the polls were absolutely dead wrong. um, And it turns out that they were wrong. Um, However, the the people were wrong, not not the polls. The polls were were accurate. Now, not all the polls were accurate. Some of the polls actually assumed the Republicans would do better than they wound up doing, in part because they made certain assumptions about the electorate. Now, this is the, the, the difficulty with polling. You have to make a guess about how people are going to vote. You can base it on what happened last time, but of course, we know that people don't vote the same way now that they did 50 years ago, so at some point there are changes, right? Sure. So figuring out when and how those changes are occurring is you know, the eternal nightmare for a pollster that they're going to make the wrong guess, right? Um, there was the wrong one. I predict you saw this with Gallup's daily tracking poll. They had a real issue with this, and Gallup is out of the daily tracking poll business this cycle. Hmm. Um, with polling this time around, you know, it, you actually have a lot of Republicans, uh, particularly Republican members of the establishment and, and uh, of the party, who say, "Look, last time we were led to believe that the numbers were biased, and we're not making that mistake this time. We're just, you know, the numbers are what they are. The data is what it is." And, you do have some people who don't buy that, but but it's not it's no longer kind of you do have this split now, um, with the polls and this gives our poor pollsters fits every single time. <laughs> there are some polls that are reliable and sure. some polls that are less reliable. And you know the ones that Donald Trump tends to point to tend to be not particularly reliable well, polls. When you say reliable, do you mean consistent or? accurate because accurate. So the like the but we don't know what's accurate until election day obviously but right but but like but for instance like the la times poll is the one that keeps getting cited well the, the being, la times poll has its own, i mean we could do a whole conversation about the problems with the la, LA times poll um and you know some of my best friends you know, it's, it's, it's a great organization but some of the the guesses that they've made mm-hmm. about the best way to measure are um unconventional got it it's not it's nothing we've seen before and it's nothing that has been proven in the past to have worked so you know it'll be a big um election day will be a big test maybe they discovered a bold new polling method that works better than anything we've ever seen before and maybe not hmm. uh, we'll we'll certainly find out i think we're talking about the the um, methods that have been found to most reliably produce the most accurate representation of the voting population so um you know, making sure the demographics are weighted properly, reaching them the right way. You're making sure you're including landlines and cell phones, that people are talking to a live interviewer, so no one can kind of game the system with an with online. I mean, you know, there are all these kind of safeguards in place, um, and polls that have a track record. You know, like you, you have certain polls that time and again have produced what are pretty darn accurate results when you come to election day. And so, you know, we look at those polls and we give those polls more weight than, you know, there are these online polls and particularly the ones that react to debate night coverage instantly. Yes. Um, where not the most scientific. Not yeah. And someone could sit at their sit home with their computer and just endlessly kind of click and clear their cache and, sure. and just keep doing it. And it, that can be game. It's not worth the click. It's it's not, not worth the, I would say it's not worth the paper it's written on, but it's online. It's, it's not worth the click. Not worth I the mean, bandwidth. It's, it's not worth the bandwidth. And, it, you know, 
Donald Trump wants to look at those polls and if it makes him sleep better at night, that's great. But you have a lot of news organizations that have gotten out of the debate night business for mm. that reason. Um, CNN does one of the best, CNN is still doing it and they do one of the better ones, but even that is just not, it's not a very scientific, and it only measures in that moment. Mm. By the next day, people have slept on it or some moment has kind of gained steam online. That could completely change. Um, so, you know, it's, it, polling is at best a snapshot. It's not. There's a, there's a big difference between the people who are going to choose to go online and fill out that poll than the people who are just going to sleep on yep. the next day. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and and to clarify, so you, and you're saying that those those are the types of polls that Trump typically likes to cite after after a debate. Well, he well and after this debate for sure. Yes. Um, after this debate, he was reading up a long list of them: Breitbart, Trudge Report, Got it. and so on. And and that's also a self self selected group of readers. As yes. Well. Yes. Um, in the past, he used to start off his rallies, and this is unique among, we've never seen presidential candidates quite do it this way before, just to circle back to the unprecedented, in the history of American politics, actually, um, speaking about their poll numbers, hmm. like rattling off a list of poll numbers, or still speaking about their primary season rivals six months later. Um, we have not seen that before. That is a new thing. Um, and it's perhaps unique to Donald Trump, but that's, that's certainly unprecedented. Do you think mistrust of the media is on the rise in this election? Do you think that's also a unique feature? There's, well, I mean, you know, that's always part of the conversation. Sure. And in part, and, you know, you've seen some real reflection from some figures, some particularly conservative figures, some um, liberal figures as well, about there's been a lot of politically motivated bashing of the media. Because if you discredit the, you know, the, the person who's reporting bad news about you, then you have discredited the bad news. But then the problem becomes, and there is no no one there to kind of be the objective that, that it's just a, a he said she said endless like fact-free environment um which is not particularly healthy at all the issue right now of course and we had our um, media critic paul far he did a great um uh, breakdown of this is there is no such thing as the media and whenever i hear someone use the media, with the exception of this conversation we're having right now, because we're talking about the concept. It was referential, not usage. Right, exactly, sure. exactly. Um, I, I immediately kind of, not just, but like, I, I, I kind of feel like they're not coming necessarily, haven't given this all the thought that they could. Um, Breitbart is in a very different business than we are, and we are in a very different business than MSNBC, which is not to say, you know, we're not all looking for information and so on, but we're not, we're not the same. It's like you know. It's not a monolith. It's not. It's not. It's not a monolith. I mean, you know, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are both New Yorkers, but you, you wouldn't say that, you know. Oh, that means they're exactly alike. I mean, it's you, you know, it's it's an impossible comparison to make, and so kind of drawing that blanket, um, it just seems to be not a very thoughtful conversation to have. Lots of people like to have it, but it's not a it's not a particularly thoughtful. Sure. As early as early as uh, one of the first uh, Republican primary debates, Ted Cruz was uh, Ted Cruz was ba uh, media ba media bashing. It's worked in the past. Yeah. Newt Gingrich had one of his most dramatic moments of his campaign last time around. Right. Kind of, you know, it's, it's a surefire applause line for sure. It's you know, get 40 years of priming to get people in that mindset. So. I would draw a distinction too between, yeah, you know, print media and television media and all of the different outlets. I mean. Yeah, quite frankly, when you have a two-year-long election cycle, there's a lot of money to be made. And I think the media, media again, quote unquote, I would you know sort of refer to the television media in that capacity, have a vested interest in having this long cycle because 
they get to sell commercials and they get to hype the debate and they get to do all of these things um, to feed off of you know the the controversy and the back and forth in the election. Um, I think that's you know one element that doesn't get talked about as well, much as well. I mean, I would say this you know as someone who spent several years in network television, um, I, you know. There are a lot of really good journalists in TV absolutely. as well, um, and so you know it's not all you know. People like to talk about the, the corporate end of it. I mean, I I can honestly tell you that's the furthest consideration from our head. It probably should be closer. That's maybe that's why the industry is not doing as well as it could. Um, but we're not thinking about that. We're thinking about how to um, get the story first and get the story right. And for television journalists, yeah, there are different considerations probably at the at the network level. Um, and again, because they're in a different business, you know, we're not. We don't devote our entire front page to reprinting 100% of the words Donald Trump said yesterday, which is essentially what's happening when sure. you're airing his uh, speech on, on the air. On the other hand, they have 24 hours of space. So, you know, it's this constant push-pull between, you know, how much is too much content and this other conversation which we have, which I think a lot of people really don't um, pick up on, which is, um, to what extent should we be playing gatekeepers? If people are hungry for a certain kind of information, you know, how much is the media supposed to the media supposed to tell them, or at least us supposed to tell them? Okay, well, you're not allowed to be interested in that kind of information. We've decided that you don't need that information. Eat We're just going we'll to we'll just give you we'll just give right. you a different kind of information. Now, Fair. our job is to make the vegetables as palatable as possible and to make people want to consume those vegetables. And if you don't, then we're not doing a great job or we're going to try our best. But um, we can't say, okay, you're not allowed. You, we're, 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 we've decided that you don't get to find out more about this, more information about this topic that you really want to find different. That's not, you know, then you really are acting as, you know, an, an elite media gatekeeper in a way that you probably shouldn't and so this is a this is a constant debate it really is sure. um you know i mean you know what's been fascinating for me you know and i only noticed this recently because i don't have cable so i've been kind of insulated from that like, millennial i know right if you like the the ads for the presidential debates it's almost like they're advertising a wrestlemania event it's the mm. same tone it's the same sort of <laughs> approach and i don't know that, that really stuck out to me in terms of you know just how at least those events are sort of being hyped. And being, well, it's easy. I mean, about. it's sure it's easy to, to to make fun of that a little bit, obviously, like you know, sure, to some extent. But it's great, I gotta say though, to see people excited about watching a presidential debate. This is not WrestleMania. It's not you know, objectively seeing two middle-aged elderly people on a stage talking about issues for an hour and a half is not you know as grabbing as seeing two guys wrestling in the you know. So the fact that people are excited about it and interested in it and seeing it as, as something kind of worth a showdown worth watching, it's hmm. it's great. It's but, the packaging. It's like we can't decide the packaging of it. Sure, the product sure. is still the same. Um, I wonder though, is it though? Because I think it would be a very sort of different. Maybe they would hype it the same way if it were to you know quote unquote traditional politicians. But are people watching to get the different policy perspectives, or are they watching because? I don't know, they think Trump might swear on national TV. Here's the issue, and and we've we've had this conversation about debates as well. Um, If you are someone who wants to know, and you heard a lot of this in the town hall debate as well, a lot of the questioners asked, what is your position on X? Well, the fact of the matter is, if you want to know candidates' position on X, that is readily available, Mm -hmm. not only through lots of coverage that we've done, but it's on their website. Whatever they've said about X is on their website. If you care, it will take you 10 seconds to find that answer. 
what you want to have is people who know that position and have questions about it. Well, sure. it feels like you haven't really expanded on this issue. It feels like your your policy doesn't add up. Or that's not what people are doing. People aren't plugged into the policy end of it. And in part, that's because I I would argue um, that people make a decision about who they're going to support for president. Um, a lot of factors are involved that they may not necessarily even be conscious of. Sure. Um, they feel as though they subconsciously belong to a certain a tribe or you know whatever that tribe may be with, with young professionals or urban dwellers or rural or farmers or whatever it is and the candidate that emotionally connects with it they feel emotionally connected to and so you can see this when you see candidate uh, people react viscerally against candidates oh I just I don't like her I can't put my finger on it I don't like him I, I, I don't quite know why I just it's something I just don't like I can't hear his voice um, it's it's about the emotion and then the the presidential campaign is trying to find logical reasons that kind of undergird your vote. Um, so the, the decision you've already made, which is why it's so hard to kind of pull people away from it. You have people who are like, I, he's not saying anything I like, but I'm still backing him. I, I don't like him at all, but I'm still supporting him. It's, yeah. it's really hard to pull yourself away from that decision once you've made it. Yeah, and kind of going on that like WrestleMania thing, I think a lot of the reason people watch the debate is they want to see their candidate win. It's not about finding out the policies. They just yeah. want to see that happen. Well, that's true. I don't. I, I'm not excusing myself from this. Uh, from the stereotype. And you're not going to get a lot of information why. in these two-minute answers as well. No, of so. course not. True. But you will get to see people like Ken Bone. So. <laughs> and we may it's talk. And we, excuse me. It's Ken Bone's world. We're just living it. So Delaney, wrapping up our conversation on the election, you wanted to talk about what's next. Yeah, so my main question was about will we see more candidates get away with scandals like Trump or is he just unique in this regard? Like, is he allowed to get away with it, but once this campaign is over, will we go back to holding candidates to a higher moral standard? Well, that's a big question. I mean, I would argue that there's, there's two trends right now when it comes to this sort of thing. We have seen more of a, I would say a, not understanding, but but more of a um, willingness to tolerate certain things in politicians now that you would not have seen 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, you know, you had a guy who had a prostitution scandal who got reelected, no problem to, to the I mean, it, these are things that used to be just completely disqualifying that no longer appear to necessarily be disqualifying. There's more of an understanding of it. Um, even, you know, Rudy Giuliani and Newt Gingrich, who, you know, they, they ran for president and, you know, they've been married however many times and so on. And so, like, this is not necessarily new. It's been a slow evolution. Donald Trump may be a singular figure in some respects because he has this larger-than-life persona that he's developed over several decades. Sure. You've had decades where people have become familiar with who they think is Donald Trump. But that's just Donald Trump. You know, that's, you know, that's that, that's just who he is. And they've absorbed it. They've already come to terms with it. Um, there are very few people who have had that pipeline into American living rooms for that extended period of time um, as a nonpartisan figure. Most, most of the time you're introduced to politicians, you're introduced to them as partisan figures. One of the reasons he's gotten such a buy is as being an outsider when he's clearly someone who has been part of the establishment since birth um, is because he was a nonpartisan figure. And, you know, he, he, you didn't, for a long time, he was every party. He's been, had seven registration changes over the past decade. Right. Um, so he really has been a part of every party. Uh, 
so yeah, so it may be that he gets a pass that very few other, that no one else can get. At the same time, politicians are increasingly getting passes for things that used to be disqualifying. So. And I just want to throw out there that I think there's a disparity in the way that men and women can get away with these scandals. Absolutely. I don't, I don't think that a woman could run for president having been married three times and having children from yeah. a couple different husbands. So throwing that out there. And spe especially <laughs> about the, especially because the, the part of the sexual assault uh, claims that we don't talk about as much because frankly it's not as important is the infidelity that he's exhibited mm -hmm. uh, during these sexual assault claims. Um, Certainly, I find it unlikely that a female candidate. What there's no limit to the amount of epithets that people would would bring out if you had a female candidate who had been married X number of times and had also been unfaithful to the most of her spouses. Yeah, I wonder if. I mean, the real question now, of course, and obviously, I hope it goes in one direction, is whether having this figure of Trump will have us make progress on a nation on these issues or simply get stuck in our ways and sort of continue to accept this as the norm. Yeah. And also out there, there's another aspect to this that I haven't seen talked about a lot, that when, not just Republican men, but like men in general are responding to the, um, the lewd quote-unquote video, they say, oh, I have a mother and like a wife and a daughter and I'm upset because of that. But like, you should be upset because you're human. And not because like you have a woman that you can relate to in your life. Also throwing that out there. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, but yeah. I think that speaks to the tone of the campaign in general. Yeah, it is. It is. It is interesting. I, I don't know if that's just because that line is a little bit easier to compress to a soundbite. Like even LeBron James dropped it uh, two days ago, I think. Yeah. Um, as opposed to higher level discussions of humanity and dehumanization and like. Well, I don't know. Human empathy is is a decent soundbite in and of itself. Yeah, I don't know. It, yeah, it well, strikes me as weird too. Yes, politicians are always tempted to connect themselves somehow to a tragedy in mm -hmm. some way, and so this is you know a way to, in some way, claim not victimization, but the, the, the empathy. Hmm. It's their misguided way of showing empathy. But as you say, and many people have pointed out, um, it it also because of the gender dynamics also does have a, a, a little bit of an interesting undertone because it implies yeah. kind of a ownership or possession. This is a debate that people will have forever, but it's, you know, it's, 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 people, particularly in these discussions, aren't always conscious of exactly um, what's driving their decisions and their thinking about this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that this conversation is taking place is, is pretty unique. Um, at, the fact that it's taking place at all. Um, I mean, I can't recall a conversation about something like this during a presidential campaign before, just to go back to the unprecedented element of it for good or bad. This campaign just keeps giving. Yeah. <laughs> the these, last are, these are important conversations, and we could spend a number of more hours on them, but uh, out of respect for your time in particular <laughs> and all of our times, uh, let's pivot away from the election and quickly talk about something a little bit more local. Uh, Shane, you wrote up an article about the movement for DC statehood. Correct. Um, can you give us a quick summary of that to maybe uh, lay the groundwork for some of us who aren't as familiar with the movement? Sure. So uh, obviously the quest for uh, full DC autonomy has been happening basically since the beginning of the country. We've seen momentum on it uh, for the most part uh, since 
the civil rights movement in the 60s moving forward from that. You saw a lot of figures who were involved in that, most notably former uh, Mayor Marion Barry get involved and sort of transition into the quest for statehood and autonomy. We've seen some progress uh, in terms of home rule, uh, the 23rd Amendment, ability to vote for the president, uh, but we've also seen a lot of stagnation, a lot of setbacks. Um, so this, uh, this November 8th, this election, residents of DC will have the opportunity to vote uh, to approve uh, DC statehood, the uh, new proposed constitution that's been discussed through constitutional convention, uh, which would essentially uh, create a much smaller uh, district of Columbia entailing the White House, the Capitol, a lot of the federal buildings, the mall, army bases, etc., while leaving most of the residential areas uh, as part of the new 51st state. Um, I think it's a couple important things worth noting. One, uh, D.C. is still under the authority of Congress. This is not a, a legally binding referendum in any sense. What it would do essentially is to uh, allow our elected representatives, allow our officials to go to Congress and present them and say, hey, we have the support, the legitimate support of an overwhelming majority, hopefully, of D.C. residents, uh, and we should be able to have our own say and finally have full autonomy. Um, I think it's also important to recognize, you know, what I've gotten a lot of the reaction that I've gotten to this article, you know, people within D.C., they usually have an opinion on the subject, some are for it, some are against it for whatever reasons, but for the most part, people say, hey, I like your article, I didn't really know about this, this is something that I really wasn't that familiar with. I think this is the biggest challenge, and, uh, you know, this came up in Kevin's interview with uh, Michael Brown, great job on that, by the way, our shadow senator, one of them, uh, that one of the biggest challenges in the quest for D.C. statehood is that People just don't know about it outside of the District of Columbia, and you know DC is a pretty transient city as well. A lot of people who come here to work from various capacities aren't really familiar with the local issues as well. So I think you know ultimately what I hope is that uh, above all else, this will help to raise public awareness not just locally but around the country on the issue of DC statehood. Because ultimately, you know we we hope to uh, influence Congress. You know, you know if you live out in whatever Colorado, California, somewhere far away. It may not be on your radar, but hopefully by passing this referendum, by highlighting some of the disparities that residents of D.C. have, uh, we'll be able to influence members of Congress sort of outside the local area as well and get more momentum on the issue. So to clarify, this vote that's upcoming within the district is rhetorical in nature. D.C. cannot declare itself a state. That requires an act of Congress, correct? That is correct, yes. Okay. Um, so then what so then you also talk about this in the article what is the uh, brushback from congress seems seems like dc legitimate part of the union basically functions like a state other than its lack of representation and self-governing uh, well certain certain aspects of home, of home rule uh, but there are certain aspects of its self-governance that it doesn't retain um, what what's the what's the argument in Congress? Why sure, I mean happening? I think it's important to recognize that a lot of it is political in nature. D.C. I think voted 98% for Demo for uh, Barack Obama in the last election, overwhelmingly liberal Democratic entity. Uh, if it became a state, that would entail basically two more guaranteed Democratic senators in addition to one more Democratic representative. Um, so the question is, you know, if or can we find a way to maybe balance that. In the past, we've had situations, you think about Alaska and Hawaii, you had them both brought in at the same time where, you know, Hawaii tra traditionally liberal, uh, Alaska traditionally conservative, in a sense to balance each other out in the Congress. Um, I think it's, you know, possible to come up with a solution. Obviously, the other obvious candidate is uh, Puerto Rico. They've had, you know, where statehood, the issue of statehood independence, uh, status quo, whatever the question is, is a lot of what drives their political debate. Um, 
But, you know, traditionally they've had Republican governors in the past. We had one as a fellow uh, last semester. That's right, Luis Fortunio. Exactly. So, um, you know, that's one uh, obvious candidate if we want to go that route. But, you know, I think it's important to recognize that just because you do have these political ramifications doesn't necessarily mean that the, under, the underlying question is not legitimate. You know, we have limited representation. We pay a higher degree per capita in federal income taxes than I think every other state. Uh, we have population on par with Wyoming and Vermont, who both have senators and representatives. Um, so I think it's just important to recognize, you know, if you want to sort of go against this movement, maybe come up with an alternative, this is something that needs to be taken into consideration. I mean, this is like a conversation that's been going on for 40 years. Exactly, so, I mean, it's, exactly. It's, it's not even, and you know, there have been lots of um, proposals floated in the past, um, giving up more electoral votes to Utah as part of um, a solution that, <laughs> that was tossed around to kind of balance it out, then you would need Utah plus traditional Republican state, um, no balance out Democratic votes. Um, Puerto Rico, I think that for most um, Republicans, they would see that as more likely to be a Democratic state in the end than the Republican one, and so um, they would probably not support that. There's just not a lot of um, not a lot of momentum for this. Exactly. <laughs> and there never, and there never, and there never has been. So, which is not to say that there, you know, something couldn't magically change. But if you had, you know, I. It's hard to see where that comes from, particularly with Republican control of Congress. It's, you know, in, in the House, it's it's a very, it it, it will be an, it, it, will be an yes. it will be a perennial conversation. Exactly. They were having the same conversation 20 years ago when I was in school. They were having it 20 years before that. We'll be having it 20 years from now, possibly. And that's again, momentum. I think is the biggest challenge, and public awareness is the biggest challenge. So, uh, you know, ultimately, I hope that that's sort of what this brings about: it's more public awareness. At least in the meantime, we can have snarky um, license plates. Yeah, so. of course. That, 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 that is. <laughs> will will that in in addition to having to in addition to simulating the cartography industry and having to redraw redraw the maps and um, the actual word for like the science of flag making escapes <laughs> me right now. I know there is a word though. Um, that's gonna that's gonna get a big boost. Um, yeah, DC is gonna have to redo all its license plates, won't it? Probably. I think it is important to recognize too that this is uh, also. A unique election cycle because we had presidential candidates taking stands on this issue. Uh, both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders have spoken out in support of it. Donald Trump maybe spoke out. It's kind of hard to interpret his his position on that, but uh, I, I don't I don't remember a time when we've seen that in the past. I mean, President Obama supported. It. Sure. Yeah, sure. I mean it, and it did. Yeah. Do you know? For what it's worth. Do you know which form of the plan they supported, like making it new Colombia or just making it part of? I don't think Maryland. they were specific. Yeah. So let's go ahead and wrap up with our recurring segment, So That Happened, where we talk about those stories that are just too good or too weird, bizarre, terrible, that we have not been able to get them out of our heads, and they've stuck with us. Um, I'm going to go ahead and award myself the privilege of start, starting this one out. Go for it. So... Um, Rebecca, you are actually not the first uh, Washington Post reporter that I've gotten to have uh, an extended conversation with. Um, when I was in undergraduate, I, one of my teachers for a class uh, that I took in DC actually was uh, Juliet Eilpern, who's now the uh, White House bureau chief. And she and I had one thing in common, which was a particularly distaste for pandas. That's okay. It, it is a shocking thing to say. Um, <laughs> and 
So in in fact, as and and my my reason for not liking pandas or not believing the hype is because I don't think they're a self-sustaining species. And another newspaper, uh, the New York Times, reported as recently as uh, the beginning of this month that uh, one of the reasons pandas are uh, they just got off the endangered species list, but one reason that their population is so low is that it turns out that female pandas actually only reach full estrus for an average of 48 hours per year. And estrus for my girlfriend's a veterinarian, but for those of our listeners who aren't as acquainted with animal science, estrus is like being in heat. Um, so female pandas can only uh, become begin the gestation process once a year for 48 hours or so. Um, and so as a result, this species just can't sustain itself because the opportunities for them to do it are so low and stay with me and and so <laughs> and so i, I and so th this is this is my main problem with pandas and i think it was one of one of the one of the problems that julia uh, had too which was that i just can't respect a species that can't keep itself going on this planet and so that is my so that happened for this session is that science bears it out. Pandas are not good at being alive. So much shade at pandas. Right? Actually, I, I agree 100%. I'm going I'm to I'm I'm take a stand on this. Yeah, we, we're putting in a lot of effort to keep this going, pandas. You need to, you need to meet us halfway that, here in terms of continuing they're, they're species. So cute, though. That same article um, from the Times cites a Scientific American uh, short post uh, about the, and I'll end it here, the production of panda erotica. Um, yes. Because sure. male pandas just have essentially forgotten how to uh, participate in their, in their, hold up their end of the deal. Um, and so they need to be shown um, what, how, what they're supposed to do. Right. And so there is actual money being deployed in addition to all of the other money that we spend within zoos, particularly the uh, Washington DC zoo, the national zoo, uh, to keep pandas alive. There is money being employed just to teach pandas how to reproduce their own species. I don't get why this is happening though. Haven't like millions of years of evolution gone into the creation of a panda? They managed before now, like how, What's changed in the panda population? That's fair. That's a lot. Fair. I mean, quite frankly, a lot of it is urbanization in China. Yeah. They have a much harder time reproducing in captivity versus in the wild. That said, I mean, come on, pandas. So if it's our fault, then we should be putting all this effort into helping pandas, Justin. I just, yeah. I disagree with your. Stance. You know, la last time I went easy on Matt Lauer. This time I'm pulling no punches, <laughs> pandas. Okay, I give and I take. Fair enough. Delaney, so, you want to go next? Okay, sure. So mine is the creepy clown epidemic, which I'm not okay with on any yes. level. It started in South Carolina, I think. Some clowns were like luring kids into the woods or something terrifying. This happens and like every two to three years. Yes does no. it? No. I don't. I don't know. I think it's. I'm like, old enough to remember the last few times. This is ha this has happened before. Why in fact, my Facebook feed video? reminded me that I had posted about this about oh, no. wow. three years ago. Yeah. Well, they're spreading <laughs> all over the place. I think yeah. like 12 people have been yeah. arrested. And um, I'm going to throw out there that it might be a conspiracy by the producers of the movie It. Mm. Sending out creepy clowns. Some really weird viral marketing. Some, like, yeah. Oh. I'm just saying that could be it. Yeah. They are. They are remaking that movie. Yeah, one of the Skarsgård's in it. So, uh, 
has anyone actually been physically hurt in the in this? Yeah, somebody was murdered in Pennsylvania by, by a clown. Like allegedly, they Dude, don't or... know if it was actually a clown, but he had been threatened by a clown, and then he was or she, I don't remember who, was stabbed later that day. You you so... say this has happened before though. Oh, yes. So yeah. has it ever gone viral like this before, yes. or is it? Wow. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I wish I could say no, but yes, um, yeah. And as, as my Facebook feed reminded me, it was, you know, and the, the reason I remembered it was because um, the last time I saw this, it was um, ABC News, not, not to begin, ABC News, um, it, back, back in 2014, saying, we thought you might like to see recommended stories, and one of them was a terrifying clown. <laughs> Like no, I would not like to see that actually. <laughs> no, not really. So, but yeah, this this happens every couple of years. Someone remembers that clowns are scary. Okay. It starts a weird trend. I yeah. just I just devoted. Just brace yourself. Like plan for like 2020 or 2019, 2020, and we will be having this conversation. Olympics, yeah. elections, and clowns. Yeah. yeah. All right, so my So That Happened is uh, I want to give a shout-out to my main man, Bob Dylan, on his recent Nobel Prize. Uh, obviously, I don't want to go into the debate over whether they should be awarding literature prizes in music. Obviously, I think he's deserving. But I want to touch more on the question of the use of real politic by the Nobel Committee and picking people based on broader cultural merits versus using the Nobel Prize to make political stances in the current climate. This seems like you know a pretty, uh, a pretty universal uh, one. This doesn't seem to be one of those instances. But I would you know flip over to the Nobel Peace Prize this year given to Juan Manuel Santos, the president of Colombia. Hmm. Uh, obviously, a little bit of an issue now because they gave the prize to him for his work in the peace process, and then it was voted down in a referendum. Yes. So you can kind of see the political implications of why they might make that selection. Obviously, you know, the big one was, of course, President Obama in 2009, where they actually, you know, came out and said, we are doing this for the purposes of real politics, you know, giving the prize, one, basically because you're not George Bush, but two, you know, in the hope that this will motivate President Obama to take more action toward world peace in his term. You know, this was early on. This was a couple months in. Um, so I don't know. I just wanted to kind of get general thoughts on whether you think this is something that they should be engaged in or whether it should be sort of broader based. Well, maybe this is a overly nitpicky question. Is the peace prize so the peace prize is handed out by a different committee than some of the other Nobels, right? I believe that's correct. But I, I would say, you know, in terms of peace and literature, those are the two where you sort of have this this dynamic. Literature they've given out, for example, uh, you know, I can think of Gabriel Garcia Marquez back in the eighties. Obviously a great writer, fantastic works, but you know, still a political element toward awarding that prize. Um, it seems more more common in the Peace Prize, but you do kind of see it in both of the passages. Hmm. It is interesting that the Peace Prize has sort of uh, gotten the, some some people could say they've sort of gotten it wrong hmm. after the fact, where yeah, it was a little bit embarrassing uh, with the Colombian referendum getting voted down, um, and then in the 1990s you had Bill Clinton and Yasser Arafat. Um, and, um, oh my, was it Shimon Perez from Israel uh, being, uh, who were awarded uh, Nobel Peace Prize? I believe that's correct. Uh, for... Yitzhak Rabin. Yitzhak Rabin. Oh, it was Rabin. Oh, Shimon Perez too. Excuse oh, yeah. Rabin, Rabin and Perez. Um, 
both of, uh, they're they're all worth the peace prize for you know ostensibly br uh, bringing a resolution to that conflict in the Middle East. And there haven't been any problems since. Right, exactly, and that's that that's sort of uh, thrown out as wow, I I can't I can't believe that happened because that was obviously not a lasting peace. Um, so yeah, it it is it is interesting. Um, but it doesn't seem to have really damaged the credibility of the Nobel Committee. Because no. I mean, the idea is, I think, that um, these are people that are making an effort to do it. So they, they want to reward, the, they want to promote the idea of the efforts that these people are making. Whether or not it works in the end, that it's a move in the direction that they are hoping that people do. So. Yeah. And I think with the Peace Prize, it's a little harder to do it strictly based on merit because Peace itself is a concept, so sure. it's not something that can be like, oh, they increased peace by this much versus this person increasing by this much. So I don't know if it's right to impose a political view on it, but I do agree like with what you said, encouraging people to do those activities. It I is not that I have an inside line into the middle. Sure, sure. 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 My educated guess here. That's good. That's a good point, though. It's one one could argue that peace, in its very nature as a concept, is is political because peace is the absence of war, which is usually made between state actors. Sure. So yeah, that's a really good point. Rebecca, we leave the chair of honor for you. What what was your what is your so that happened so for this, this week? This is the thing. I, I I feel like you almost have to retire this year because the entire year has been a so that happened <laughs> in the Washington Post issue. I mean, just generally speaking, I mean, I. I could go down the list. Even in a given day, it's hard to pick just one so that happened. It's certainly, you know, we're sitting right now just a few feet away from David Farenthold's desk. And uh, last week at this time, um, he had just gotten a phone call telling him about a video. And the entire newsroom, literally, you could see from desk <laughs> to desk, people going, Ripple of that. Holy crap. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was a pretty big so that happened. Um, and uh, every day since then. So, um, yeah. I would just... End of 2016 is my so that happened. 2016 <laughs> is, the, is the year of so that happened. Fair enough. Well, thank you for joining us. This Appreciate has been it. a great conversation. Yeah. Um, Thanks for visiting our yeah, this, cool. this is the best glass box I've ever spent <laughs> there time you go. As glass boxes go. <laughs> yeah. uh, my name was Justin Goss. This is Delaney Luna, Shane McCarthy, and thank you, Rebecca Cinderbrin of the Washington Post, for having us. And thank you all for joining us for. View from the Hilltop, episode two. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the GPPR podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in more, check out gppreview.com, our Facebook page, GPP Review, and our Twitter, at GP Policy Review.